one of the things that my wife and I made the decision on when we were, our kids were young, was to not tell the kids what's going to happen next. Because if you tell them, we're going to go do this, and it doesn't happen, like they're crushed. And so we learned if we want to keep our word, because sometimes life happens and things, plans need to change, but kids don't get that, especially when they're young. They don't understand that, you know, if, you know this has got to happen now or this happened. And so we wanted to be someone who kept our promises to our kids, so we really wouldn't tell them that we're going to Disney World until we're actually in the car on the way to Disney World, and there was nothing that was going to stop that from happening. You know, keeping promises is a big thing. We're going to see today how God kept his promises to us and how Christmas is a representation of God's promises kept. You know, one of the great stories in history that I love, um, thinking about a kept promise, and the after Pearl Harbor, we just celebrated, I think what was it, the 82nd anniversary of Pearl Harbor this past week? Um, not, you know, not celebrating, but remembering the uh, Pearl Harbor and how awful of an event that was. You know, in the South Pacific, the Japanese war machine was rolling through island after island, and General Douglas MacArthur was in the Philippines there with his troops, and President Roosevelt was worried that the U.S.'s prized general was going to be captured by the Japanese as the island that he was on in the Philippines was slowly being surrounded. And so President Roosevelt got word to General MacArthur to say, please leave. We need to save you to, for the war effort in the South Pacific. And so against Douglas MacArthur's um, wishes, he did not want to leave his troops. He escaped by night on a small PT boat across the South Pacific and escaped to Australia. And on March 20th, 1942, he uttered this promise to his now captured troops in the Philippines. I shall return. It's a famous phrase. I shall return. March 1945, he stood back on the shore of the Philippines, and he kept his promise. He said, I have returned. He liberated his thousands of troops that had been POWs for three years, liberated them from the clutches of the Japanese. That is a big promise to keep. Because at that point in the war, the Japanese were winning. They were taking over the whole South Pacific. But he made a promise, and he kept that promise. We're going to see today how the coming of Christ as a baby in the manger was a promise kept all the way back to the beginning of the age. And I'm really glad God came up with the idea of Christmas. But what did God have in mind when he created Christmas? What motivated him to bring Christ to us? When we think about Christmas, we normally turn to passages in our Bible and you know, Luke, and we read about Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the shepherd and the wise men there um, on that, that Christmas, that first, first morning or first evening that Christ was born. 
yet scattered throughout Scripture in your New Testament are not, not only in the New Testament, but the Old Testament are breadcrumbs, little statements about why Jesus is coming or in the New Testament why he came. And these breadcrumbs tell you why Jesus came to earth that first Christmas day. Now, you may have to look for these breadcrumbs. You may have to dig a little deep because they are not obvious at first. And if we're not careful, we can simply skip right over them as you're reading through the Bible. So why did Jesus come after all? Buried inside our Bibles are God's reasons for the first Christmas. I'm going to take you to a passage this morning that's not normally a Christmas passage. And we're going to look in Romans. And this will be the passage that we point back to um, time and time again as we begin reading in verse 8 of Romans chapter 15. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Let me stop right there. The circumcised, he's talking about the Jews. He's saying, God sent Christ to come to this earth as a baby, as a servant, to show that he kept his promise. Throughout all of the patriarchs, all of the Old Testament, God was telling them, I will send someone to be the sacrifice for your sins. And he said he sent Christ to show that I am a God who keeps my promises. Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Who is the root of Jesse? You'll have to flip back about nine weeks in our David series. Whenever Samuel came to anoint the son, or to anoint the next king of David, and whose house did he go to to find the little shepherd boy David? The house of Jesse. Even who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Man, what a powerful passage from Paul explaining why Christ came, why we have Christmas. Christmas is the story of God keeping his promises. Christmas was a long time in coming, all throughout Scripture. You know, have you given much thought to how long God prepared for the first Christmas? Paul gave it a lot of thought when he said there in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Paul records that Jesus Christ became a servant. 
or that Christ became a man, as we, talk, we sing about Emmanuel, God with us. Paul records that Jesus did this so that we would see God's truthfulness. That when God says something, he does it. He follows through. From the foundation of the world itself, the Trinity, the God had planned this event. God planned not only history's first Christmas, but they planned the timeline of salvation itself. And along the timeline of salvation, God made promises. Christmas took a long time in coming because God designed it this way for a reason. You know, just if you take a quick look, you know, it'll show you that approximately two-thirds of the Bible is devoted to what happened before the birth of Jesus or what we call the Old Testament. So let me walk you through just a brief timeline leading up to the birth of Christ. And while God oftentimes moves the timeline in slow, and it seems like plotting ways, this brief survey will show two really Himalayan mountains for us of peaks that emerge from the, the pages of the Bible. And what you need to know, what you need to remember is that God planned it this way. He planned Christmas this way. God designed history to culminate in his son's death, burial, and resurrection. So we learn first from the last book of the Bible that the death of Christ was not an afterthought. Our timeline really begins at the end of our Bible. In fact, the last book of the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was slain, meaning his death was planned before the foundation of the world. John confirms this as well when Jesus says, and I paraphrase, no one takes my life from me. I have come to die. He knew why he came to this earth. Jesus came to die for our sins. When we read in the first sin of the Bible and the book of Genesis, God is not surprised. God knew this would happen. In fact, shortly after the first sin, by the first people, Adam and Eve, God predicts the death of his son. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you, and, and you shall bruise his head heal predicting the death of christ all the way back at the beginning of genesis so from these verses we learn of a plot god has something up his sleeve only what god is planning isn't revealed immediately from genesis chapters 4 through 11 we learn of the devastating results of the fall we see the progressive alienation of humans from god and from each other in these eight chapters we witness just the moral degradation that happens all throughout the earth. In these eight chapters, you know, sin has become so rampant that God wiped out nearly all of the planet with the flood. Just a handful of people, Noah and his family, are spared. By chapter 11, a rebellion is towering through the land again, defying God. Yet from out of this godlessness, God speaks again. And he gives a promise to a man at first name Abram. He gives a promise that we're going to see this promise all the way back with Abram that is fulfilled with Christmas. 
He says in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he's referring here to the Jewish nation. The nation of Israel comes from Abraham. Understanding this promise is indispensable to understanding the Bible. If you're going to make any, any kind of sense of the Bible's plot line, you're going to have to make sense of this Abrahamic covenant that was made that God made to Abraham, you cannot understand Christianity with some sense, without some sense of knowing who Abraham is. He is a man who lived 4,000 years ago, or about 2,000 years before Christ. And we're introduced to him for the first time here. And we're in, introduced to him with a covenant. And a covenant is something is more than a promise. You hear the word covenant used in marriage today. A marriage covenant. It is something that is should be unbreakable. It's like God's self-job description. The all-powerful, all-wise God writes his own job description so as to assure his followers that he will do good and not evil. And there are many covenants throughout the Bible, but we see this first one. We see the Abrahamic covenant god himself changes abram's name to abraham which means goes from exalted father to father of many god changing abram's name to to show that at least two of god's promises to him and the promise is best articulated in the verses i just read to you five times the word bless or blessing appears in these verses first his progeny over time would become many he is the ultimate ancestor of all of the Israeli people. Second, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed by God through Israel. He is indeed the father of many. God's original promise to Abraham wasn't just for the Jews. If you read that, it says, And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. We are blessed through this promise of Abraham. History records that God did exactly what he said he would do. He rose up a nation from the loins of Abraham, and God blessed the nations through Abraham from the beginning. God was working to reach the nations through the Jews. God chose Israel to be his spokesman to the nations. Israel was to be God's missionary nation to the world. They were to share the message of the goodness of God with other nations, yet God made a significant promise he made a covenant to Abraham that he kept. You see another covenant here. And this brings us to the story of the character that we've looked at over the last several months. King David. He made a promise to David. And I want you to see this promise that God made to David. And I thought it was fitting that we would finish the series on David today, tying in... David to the Christmas story. How does David, who lived hundreds of years before the time of Christ, play a part in this Christmas story? Let's read. 
here in our verse in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took, from, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, listen to this promise, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Man, that's a, that's a strong promise making to, to David. How could he make a promise that David would have a throne that would be established forever? Because we know when we look at history that every dynasty eventually falls. There is no dynasty upon the face of the earth that lasts forever. God says to David, I took you from the farmland to appoint you as a prince over my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone. And now he says, I will make for you a name of one of the great ones of the earth. This passage is prophetic. It works like a telescope. It's like a long survey of events and telescopes them down to the near and distant events as they are viewed together. Let me show you how these verses act as a telescope. In this verse, God predicts that Solomon, which was David's son, will reign after David. It's in verse 14. He says, when God speaks of Solomon's sin, he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of of the son of men. But the prediction goes far beyond Solomon and his imperfection. In verse 13, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The word forever appears two additional times in verse 16, and here is God's promise. Here is what we call the Davidic covenant. Here is the promise, the covenant made to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Years go by. King after king comes to the throne of Israel. Yet we do not see this forever kingdom. God made a covenant with Abraham approximately 2,000 B.C. God made a covenant with David at approximately 1,000 B.C. And the question emerges on the lips of everyone. Where is God? The Babylonians come in. The Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans and occupy 
the nation of Israel, and the question asks, where is God? How is he going to fulfill his covenant with David? Will he do what he says he will do and allow someone of David's lineage to sit on the throne forever? He promised, we see here, that Christmas was a very long time coming. And Christmas is designed to confirm God's promises. Christmas is the story of God keeping his promises. Christmas is the story of God keeping his covenant. Christmas is the story of God, yet most of us don't think of it in those terms. Most of us don't feel the worth and the value of God keeping his promises during this time, nor do we sense the magnitude of his faithfulness to fulfill what he said he would do. It's like a TV news story telling the tragedy of a natural disaster in a faraway country. Neither of these two promises really kind of fall on us during this Christmas season. What feels close to us during this Christmas season is how we're going to pay all of our bills and buy all of these gifts and just make it through, you know, and not go into debt. That's, that's kind of what falls on us during this Christmas time. We get stressed out about finances and what family we're going to spend time with and, you know, how we're going to get here and all the food I've got to buy. You know, all of this stuff is what falls on us at Christmas and not the thought of, man, God fulfilled his promise. To value and appreciate the worth of God in worship, you need to feel the distance between these promises of in the, with the first Christmas. To value and appreciate God's work at Bethlehem, you need to feel the unlikelihood of God's work in Mary and Joseph. And I want you to feel the distance and the anguish that, in that Romans chapter 15, verse 8 passage, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to show the fulfillment of the promise given to David a thousand years before in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs. Say, Pastor Robert, how has he fulfilled it? I'm getting there. Hold on, I'm getting, I'm going to tell you how he fulfilled it to David. Paul records that Jesus did this so that the circumcised would see God's truthfulness. Or Paul puts the same thought in another way when he says that the first Christmas occurred so that it would confirm those promises. Paul also says, as he's writing the, 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 the church at Galatia, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. In other words, when God was ready, Jesus came. All those thousands of years between these promises, these people are wondering, is God going to fulfill it? Let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to see how it was fulfilled. Now, if you remember, Matthew, the apostle, he was writing to the Jewish people. Remember that. You remember the audience. He's writing to the Jewish people to show them that God was fulfilling this promise. Let's read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of who? The son of David. 
the son of Abraham. In the first book of the New Testament, what is Matthew showing the Jewish people? God fulfilled his promise in Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he connects the dots for us. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew's telling them, listen, listen. God fulfilled his promise to the person of Jesus Christ. He said he would send a Messiah, that David's throne would rule forever. What is the only kingdom that will rule forever? It is the kingdom of Christ through the line of David. God kept his promise. God keeps his word despite the horrifying events that we might find ourselves in. God can be relied upon. I love how at the end of that, Calvin, go put up, put up that last verse for me again real quick. I love how that last verse ends, how Matthew records this. We read about this story, what, three weeks ago now? And Matthew doesn't exclude this. How does he write this? And David was the father of Solomon by whose wife? by the wife of Uriah. It's like Matthew saying, yeah, David messed up. But God can still work through our sin and through our Savior, or through our, our sin and through our circumstances for our good. David had a horrific event, committing adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and then murdering Uriah if you weren't here with us that week. And then marrying Bathsheba after the murder of Uriah. It's like Matthew saying, he's telling the people, we're going to sin, we're going to fall, but through our sin, God can still use us if we have a repentant heart. He calls that out. I find that very interesting. God confirmed his promises. God kept his covenant. When the baby arrives in Bethlehem and the toil and misery are brought to fruition, Jesus in the manger is a promise kept. So when you read Luke chapter 1, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And when we call the Son of the Most High, 
And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, who? David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long will that kingdom last? Forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. He rules forever. He blesses the nations. He blesses us even to this day. All God's promises find their yes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The God we serve is a God who keeps his promises. Man, isn't that assuring? Doesn't that give you hope? As you leave here today, to know that not only is our God alive, but he keeps his promises. Just like God promised he would send Christ the first time to die for our sins, he has also promised that he will send Christ again to rule and reign forever. So what we know about God is that when he makes a promise, he fulfills it. And so just like the Jewish people were waiting for God all those years to fulfill the covenant with Abraham and David and send Christ, we today are waiting for God to fulfill this promise to send Christ to rule and reign forever. So how should our hearts respond to this. Christmas is designed for us to worship. When we think about the God that we serve, our response should be to worship him. Paul says this as much in the passage we've already read, verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles, that's you and I, I don't think there's any Jewish people in here. I think we're all Gentiles in here today. The Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. You have the the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. All of history is moving toward one goal. And that one goal is the praise and worship of God by all the peoples of the earth. Israel was the means to an end. The end was to see all the people, both Jew and Gentile, worship Christ for his mercy. You see, Christmas is the megaphone by which we can scream, Christ is supreme. God has inspired Paul to tell you the reason for Israel, the reason for Christ's love for you, the reason for the first Christmas. All of this is done so that you may exalt He is our joy. It says at the end of all history, 
and Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The throne that would be forever. Christ coming through the line and lineage of David will sit on his throne forever. Christmas is the story of God. It's a story of God's praise for his mercy upon us. God designed Christmas for worship among all peoples. And it brings together his people from the four corners of the earth. And it does everything for the praise of the glory of his grace. We don't deserve the grace of God, church. When I look at my life and how I sin against a holy God day after day after day, it's only by his grace that you and I are here today. Is your life an act of worship to the son of David, Jesus Christ? The greatest thing you can do this Christmas season is to give your life to him. Let's pray.